Hey, welcome everybody to the Financial Independence Podcast, the podcast where I get inside the brains of some of the best and brightest in the personal finance space to find out how they achieved financial independence. Before we get into today's show, I have a little holiday giveaway for you. Uh, Jim Collins from jlcollinsnh.com kindly donated a few audiobook codes for The Simple Path to Wealth, which is his book that he released this year that's been an absolutely huge success. So if you want the chance to win one of those codes, then just go to madfiantist.com slash iTunes, leave a review for the show, and then shoot me an email just to say that you did it. And then I will pick a couple winners from all the iTunes reviews I receive in December, including my most recent review from Swarty24, who says I'm the Oprah of financial independence. So uh, that was a very cool review and I enjoyed reading that. So thanks for that. Anyway, on to today's show. I'm excited to introduce my guest, and he's a bit different than my other guests. He's not a writer. He's not a blogger. Uh, he's a guy I met recently when I was in Dallas, Texas, and he has an incredibly interesting story. So this is a guy who has sold a company to Google, has invested in San Francisco real estate before it was crazy expensive like it is now. And despite all of that, he said that the thing that impacted his savings the most was saving. So just flat out boring saving is what contributed most to his financial independence. So he's hit financial independence about three different ways. He's currently starting a new company, even though he's financially independent, which is also something I wanted to talk to him about, because the more I learn about financial independence after quitting work, the more I see that people don't just sit on beaches all day. So I wanted to chat with him about why he's deciding to start another company at this stage and find out what motivates him these days. So we had a great discussion. There's a lot of really good information in this episode, especially if you're unsure about what you're going to do after you achieve financial dependence or if you're interested in starting your own business because Chris is a successful entrepreneur. He's helped build lots of businesses when he worked at Google Ventures and now he's starting a company called Grove, which is aiming to help people get control of their financial lives by combining technology with classic financial advisor advice. Really cool stuff. And he has a lot of great information and knowledge to share. So without further delay, here's my interview with Chris Hutchins from usegrove.com. Hey, Chris, thanks a lot for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we just met in Dallas a couple months ago. Uh, we both were invited kindly by Teresa and Shannon from the Center for Financial Services Innovation. We were invited to this really nice dinner um, for the Financial Solutions Lab, which is something you're a part of, right? Yes. Yeah, we were one of the eight companies they chose this year to be a part of their program. It's very cool. And um, yeah, I don't know why I was chosen, but it was nice to, to join and get to talk to people like you. And we, uh, yeah, before dinner started, we had this really good chat and there was a few incredibly interesting things you said to me about your story. Uh, so excited to chat to you about some of that stuff. You mentioned that you've done a couple things that people think you need to do to become financially independent or wealthy. Uh, you sold a company to Google and you bought real estate in San Francisco back before it was really cool. So those two are really interesting things that I definitely want to talk about. But the thing that you said to me that just struck a chord was that despite doing those two things, the thing that has impacted your net worth the most is just consistent savings. So tell me about that comment. Sure. Yeah. So um, like you, I have my own kind of track my, my financial independence and, and situation spreadsheet. And uh, as I, I look at it, I kind of have the categories of sources of money. Um, and, you know, some of it was from, you know, when we were fortunate to sell a company to Google and some from the house, but the largest bucket by kind of, you know, al almost the factor of two is just real savings. That's incredible. So to give the audience an idea of like, how old are you currently? Sure. Yeah, I'm 33 right wow. now. So 33 um, and you've yeah, done these amazing things and yet savings is the, is the biggest impact to your net worth. To give people a little bit of background about you, can you talk about, you know, how you got into starting companies? Sure. Yeah. So I think as uh, you know, if I, if I go back to, I guess, high school, maybe, maybe before, but I'll start there. Um, you know, I was, I went to a school where a lot of the people at my school, um, had a lot more money than I did and their parents gave them, you know, great allowances. And so I'd always real, I'd realized early, like if I'm going to be able to kind of keep up or, 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 you know, I need to figure something out. So I remember in high school, I, you know, created t-shirts for, um, our football games and sold them. Uh, you know, I created a job at our school where, um, I went to, I ended up at a boarding school where I was like running the mail room. And so I had kind of always been, 
creative in finding ways to generate income because I knew that I didn't have, have what everyone else did and needed to figure out a, a creative way to do it. And that kind of grew on and on. And, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do after college, but I, I took the traditional route of a, a job at an investment bank and a management consulting firm and quickly realized that those things were not for me. And I think that's what really sent me down this path of financial independence because I was like, man, these jobs are not for me. I don't know what job is for me, but I, there's no world in which I want to do a job I don't love for the rest of my life. So I need to make some sort of kind of radical change to save enough money because I have not yet found a job or a career that I love. And if I don't find it, I, I want to put myself in a position where I don't have to be doing something less than exciting for the rest of my life. And that's what kind of led me to be more entrepreneurial. Um, I went to this event in New York called Startup Weekend, and it was basically an opportunity for a bunch of people to get together. There were engineers and designers and business people and create a company over a weekend and launch a product. And the products that were launched never really amassed anything. We made a Windows desktop app that would remind you every... 20 or 40 minutes that you should get up and stretch. It was called desk happy. Um, it never went anywhere, but it kind of made me realize that, wow, this is something I enjoy. And, and almost immediately after that event, I told my wife that we have to move to California. There's people that are doing this thing that's amazing and starting companies. And I'd always been a, you know, kind of closet or maybe not closet internet nerd. (laughs) Uh, and so, you know, we, we started a process to move out to the Bay area, which is where, you know, I first found, you know, startups and, you know, just a sea of entrepreneurship. And that kind of drove me down a path of finding more and more things that I was excited about. But I'd kind of already put myself into the ways of, you know, really efficient living, optimizing everything from travel to life to money. And so it just seemed like such a lucrative benefit of putting yourself on that track that I kind of, despite finding a career I liked, I I just stayed on it. Nice. That's really impressive. And, it, and it's it's impressive that you were able to do that as an investment banker or a management consultant as well. Those are two careers that are probably not many frugal people are are hanging out in those circles. Is that true? Yeah. the Those are not frugal careers. Uh, I did my investment banking stint for about nine, nine, 10 months. And I was like, this just isn't for me. So I missed, uh, the majority of the compensation in those careers come in the form of bonuses. So I, I didn't stick around the first job long enough for a bonus. And the second job was at a company that, uh, eventually, um, needed to be sold, but never paid bonuses the year I was there. So, uh, I, I was somewhat also in a situation where everyone kind of around me was spending money as if they would make lots of bonuses, but I hadn't ever seen them. So, uh, not surrounded by frugal people, uh, and, but also not with enough money to, you know, be in New York and, you know, have a choice other than frugality. Right. What is, uh, what is investment banking like? So you obviously not very fun for you if you last in nine months, but yeah, it's, it's always been something that's intrigued me. What is, what is the lifestyle like? Yeah, I mean, I would say it was a, it's a pretty demanding career. Um, I mean, to the extent I know about it, but I definitely had other friends in it. And, you know, it, it didn't mean anything to me until I started interviewing in college. But essentially, investment banks are hired by other companies um, to assist and aid in transactions, mergers, acquisitions, IPOs. And those things are always the most important thing to the company at the time. And the investment banks bear the brunt of a lot of the work. And so it's the kind of job where I think that my tipping point um, that came about eight and a half months was that there was an entire week where Monday through Friday, I got home after my wife had went to bed and I left before she woke up. And I was like, this just isn't like, it was not a fulfilling enough job to get home at, you know, midnight and leave at five thirty six in the morning to get to work because there was just so much to do. And I was so low on the totem pole that it was a, a truly 24 seven other than a, you know, a few hours of sleep job, maybe wow. 27. <laughs> yeah. That does not sound like a good time. So, so you're entrepreneurial pretty much from what you've said about, you know, you're growing up. It sounds like you're had that entrepreneurial spirit. Was it hard to convince your wife to just pick up and move all the way across the country or? So, at the time, my wife didn't totally love her job and didn't totally love New York. Uh, so I said, hey, I, I want to move. 
uh, you know, these are the four cities that the company I work at, you know, has an office. I would love it to be San Francisco, but I know you don't love New York. And the other options were Boston and LA and Chicago. And we went out to San Francisco for a weekend and we were like, this seems like the right of those places. Um, so at least one of us would still have a job when we got there and San Francisco was it. And it just happened to very, very perfectly align with this whole industry that I was just getting, you know, acquainted with. Um, and it seemed like the perfect move. Nice. And so this, what year is this? It's October 31st, 2008. And, you know, it seemed like we you know move out to San Francisco, everything's going well. And I think somewhere around November 20th, uh, or maybe right after Thanksgiving before Christmas, but December, November, 2008, uh, I got a call at the management consulting firm I worked for to come meet with someone who I'd never heard of. And it was a senior director. I came in and got laid off on the oh, spot man. Uh, as part of the end of 2008. Oh, geez. Yeah. That's a good time to get out of New York, I guess, <laughs> but you can't really escape it in, in California either, I guess. Nope. So that, that kind of kicked me into, you know, entrepreneurial spin too, because it's the end of 2008. It's not quite easy to get, uh, you know, jobs aren't just growing on trees <laughs> and, you know, I needed to do something with my, my time. So at this point, did you have uh, enough saved up that you weren't stressed or did, you know, were you yeah. pretty much freaking out at this point? I think at this point I'd saved up enough that we weren't too stressed out. I think I'm trying to put all the pieces together. My wife had already gotten a job in San Francisco in the first few months. Um, she'd been interviewing and she actually moved out a month before me. And so she had a job. We had an apartment. San Francisco hadn't kind of hit the arc of becoming the most insanely expensive city in America <laughs> yet. And so I just, it was more about, we had a buffer. It's like, let's figure out something because these last two things didn't work out. So did the entrepreneurship starting a company start first or was the real estate something that you started looking into pretty much immediately after getting out there? Yeah. So when I got laid off, I was like, I don't know what to do but everyone else is in this situation. And I ended up starting, I guess not a company because we didn't make money, but uh, an organization called laid off camp. So I was like, there's a lot of people in this circumstance. Maybe there's something we can all do together. Uh, so I started this event. It was called laid off camp. We did one in San Francisco. We had tons of media there because it was so timely and we had hundreds of people show up and it was kind of an ad hoc unconference where you had sessions being led by people who'd been in HR for their whole careers, teaching people how to interview. You had younger kids teaching older people how to use LinkedIn, how to set up an online presence. And it kind of became this really supportive environment of, you know, people learning how to put their skills to use in freelance, how to, what to do to start a company. And, uh, every, everything kind of came together and a few people came up from LA and then they decided to, you know, with, with my support, help put on one in LA. And by the end of 2009, I think we'd done 20 laid off camps around the country. Oh, wow. What a great idea. And like, I, I know a lot of my listeners are interested in entrepreneurship and starting their own businesses. And, you know, that seems like a fantastic idea that, you know, you took the situation as it was and you figured out a way to, you know, help other people in that situation. Is that what you found you just need to be cognizant of what's going on around you and figuring out ways to help people. Is that how you've structured some of your other companies? Almost every kind of interesting or exciting opportunity from a, at least from an entrepreneurial, but if not from a life standpoint has always come from, you know, working on something, realizing there's a big opportunity and just being able to jump on it. Um, I think I had an assist from the fact that I got laid off. So I didn't really have a choice, right? It wasn't, I didn't have to make the decision to quit my job to pursue something. <laughs> Someone else made that decision for me. Um, but just putting yourself in the right place in the right time and taking advantage of interesting opportunities to learn or, um, to try things out has, has been what kind of consistently led me to the next thing almost every time. Um, and, almost, you know, as a life principle, you know, I would say just say yes, right? Someone invites you to go to something that you've never done before, say yes, go do it, go somewhere new, um, meet someone, try something. It seems like that when you open up the doors to everything, um, and you're kind of aware of what's going on, it, you know, it's the reason we started the company I'm running now called Grove is that, you know, I'm really interested in financial optimization. And I had a bunch of friends say, gosh, you should do this for a living. And I was like, oh, 
I wonder what that would look like. <laughs> and that path led me down a, a road to eventually start a company that helps people with fi- their finances and financial planning um, to raise some venture capital money to do it uh, and, and to build that out. So it, it seems to be a consistent theme of just being aware of when opportunity is there and, and not being afraid to take it. And it's also, you know, proactively putting yourself in these positions too, because we were just chatting before the call and you had, and I was asking you how you found FinCon to be. And you said, yeah, it was great. It was, it was my one thing that I do every month and, uh, to put myself out there and it, it paid off. So can you talk a little bit about that, that goal for you and how that's helped, you know, foster some of these opportunities? Yeah. So I guess someone once told me that their new year's resolution was to make sure that they did something interesting every month. And I thought, wow, that's such a great idea. And so I immediately was like, I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to do it this year. I'm going to do it for the rest of my life. And so I put together a spreadsheet of ideas and I just made sure that every month, um, for the rest of my life, I did something, um, memorable, uh, unique, um, you know, something where I learned some things, took some opportunity. And, you know, I think that was in March of 2014 that I started. And since then, every month is accounted for. Wow, that's amazing. And can you give any like examples of the most fun ones, most uh, lucrative ones, anything like that? Like any ones that stand out that were just like, oh, I'm so glad that I did that? Yes. So I'm trying to think of some some random ones. So you know, some of them are as small as I just, I'd always wanted to just host a multi-course dinner party. So I just planned a, you know, seven course dinner that I cooked myself and invited a bunch of friends. Um, things like, uh, I built an igloo in Colorado one winter, um, and like actually cut ice with, with a chainsaw and built blocks. Um, a woman that I had met and didn't know very well had texted me on a random evening and said, Hey, are you free on I think it was like a Tuesday afternoon. And I was like, well, I've got, you know, I work. And I was like, why? And I knew she had used to work. She used to work at the white house. And I was like, I could be free. What's going on? She's like, Oh, do you want to drive a press van? Um, when Obama's in town, I didn't really know the full extent of what she was asking. And it turns out that when the president travels, they invite random citizens to drive all of the vans in the motorcade. Uh, <laughs> and so I'd taken the day off and I ended up driving one of the kind of staff vans in the presidential motorcade from San Francisco down to Stanford in Palo Alto. Uh, so the president could give a speech, met the president. Like wow. it was just one of those, uh, my wife was like, well, I have work. Should we do this? And she ended up driving a press van and we were just like, <laughs> it seemed like something where on two days notice to just not go to work for a day and move things around for some random thing that a person you just met, uh, told you about, like, don't do it, but you know it ended up being some crazy, you know, wild experience. That's um, fantastic. So saying yes—that's a—that's a good tip for everyone. Um, and then, do you do anything to actively seek some of this stuff out? Yeah. So what's interesting is San Francisco has an opportunity for a random meetup every day, and so I probably go to events around San Francisco somewhat regularly. A little bit less so since starting a company, um, but I, I've tried to create the bar of my monthly experiences as things that I couldn't just do any day. So the, like, if, if you were talking to me in 2008 or seven, I'd be like, yeah, going to a meetup of entrepreneurs would totally be this one monthly experience. Now in San Francisco, it's like, oh, I could literally do that every night if I wanted to. (laughs) Uh, and so I've been trying to raise the kind of memorability bar to something that, you know, I would remember for the rest of my life. And that was really the idea was I didn't want to ever look back on life and say, April, 2015. Wow. Nothing happened. Like (laughs) nothing, an entire month went by and not one memorable thing ever happened. It seemed like life should be something where at least once a month, something memorable happens. That is very cool. I, I really like that. Um, so to get back to your story, you're just been laid off. You create this organization to help other people that are laid off. And where does that go from there? So from there, I went down a path of helping people put these events on. We ended up having sponsors. I ended up meeting some of them. They were really excited by a few different random pieces of my past, one being putting these events on, one being doing some investment banking. And I ended up getting a a couple different freelance jobs. And so it turns out that actually ended up creating, while, while laid off camp never made money, 
it did create an income stream through the relationships I built that, you know, sustained me for the next kind of nine months. And because I was in laid off mode, we were super efficient those next nine months. And I went to every event I could that had free meals. Uh, you know, I would get company swag. So I had tons of free shirts and, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. That's so cool. And yeah, it, it's amazing what comes from things that don't look like it can earn money themselves, but then, yeah, they lead to other things. And that's sort of what happened with the mad scientists is like, if you would never start a blog in financial independence and hope to make money of it because you tell everyone that reads your site not to buy anything or not to spend money. Uh, but then it's just amazing. Like, like the card tool that I created before the mad scientist is now starting to earn money as a result of having the mad scientist. And it's just, it's weird how that happens, but I think, yeah, when you serve people and you help people out, then good things just come back to you some way. Yeah, I think that's my number one rule I tell people about kind of financial independence is, you know, the creativity you get from having free time often leads to making money. So people are kind of rapidly trying to save enough so they can stop working. And then they have all of these interesting opportunities to pursue their passions. And maybe that's a blog, maybe that's a tool you make, maybe that's a company you start, and then you end up actually making more money than you thought. Uh, so it's almost like you could, you could take whatever you think you need for financial independence and just like haircut it by 30%. And, you know, it probably, you could argue that's not the most conservative approach, but it seems to kind of be a rule of thumb that, that probably works more often than not. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And the more and more people I interact with, not only bloggers and things, obviously they have something that they've been working on even before financial independence, but just even people at the meetups that I go to. And it's just, yeah, amazing what they're doing. And yes, they're generating a lot of income that they didn't expect. So anytime anyone asks like, oh, the 4% rule, is that really going to be you know, perfect for the future? And it's like, well, nobody ever knows, but you know, you're 35 years old, you obviously are a hard worker and you're intelligent and you've been able to accomplish this. So even if the markets tank, I think you're going to be fine and you'll figure out a way to uh, earn money and you'll probably be earning money anyway that you didn't expect. So to get back to your story, how did the company start that you eventually then sold to Google? Yeah. So I had, you know, there's a big long interlude that I'll just skip over. And if we want to, we can come back, which was, uh, you know, my three contracts had come up and my wife's job that she had, um, she didn't love that job and it was not the best work environment. And we were like, you know what, we've been being really efficient with our money, which, which, you know, resulted in, um, a little bit more savings than we had thought. I'd always been kind of a miles and points nerd and, you know, we had some miles and points saved up and we just decided we were going to take two or three weeks and go on a trip before we kind of put the, you know, pedal the metal and figure out what we want to do for our careers. And that two to three weeks ended up turning into a seven month trip around the world oh, wow. where we spent, where we spent, uh, I think less than $30 a day for seven months, which we were renting our apartment furnished back in San Francisco, um, for a little bit more than we were paying for it because, you know, a furnished apartment can rent more. And it, you know, the whole trip ended up costing me, um, like $7,000, but I think the rent arbitrage ended up making us like five or 600 bucks a month. And so like it ended up costing us just a few thousand dollars each. And so that happened. Um, and we came back and we were like, we need to get serious about what we want to do. And I had been given an opportunity to speak at a conference called South by Southwest. And we actually ended our trip flying straight from Singapore to Austin. And I gave a talk about, you know, being fun employed and how to turn that into something. And at that conference, I was like, I know that I want to start a company one day. I know that I want to work in technology. I need to go spend a little bit more time learning. I'm going to find an amazing company. And I sought out a company that I knew had a great group of investors, a great group of founders and employees, and was in kind of a interesting space at the time. I, I went there. I wanted a job there. I did the atypical job search thing of instead of sending a resume to 100 companies, I just picked one company. And I was like, this is the company. I'm going to work at this company. And I, every time I met someone, I was trying to find the right path to that company uh, I ended up finding someone who convinced one of their investors to convince the founders to let me give them a presentation on why they should hire me. <laughs> and so I put together like a 20 slide presentation and gave it to the two 
new founders of the company and said, you know, this is why you should hire me. And I think they turned around and said, as I now know, as a founder of a company, anyone that's willing to go to those links to work here, like we can find a way to make that value. <laughs> right. And so I worked there for uh, about a year. And in that process, I had met uh, a guy named Kevin Rose, who had started a company called Dig before. And he was looking to start another company. And he was looking for someone that could just like, essentially like hustle to figure whatever necessary out, uh, and just make everything happen. And so he had asked me, Hey, do you want to come start this company with me? Um, we're, we're getting it off the ground. It's going to be a mobile incubator. Uh, and I was like, uh, it just seemed like the perfect opportunity. It was everything I like to do. Um, it was a new challenge. It was starting, you know, at the ground, at the ground floor. And that led to that company where we spent about a year trying a few different mobile apps. I ended up doing operations, HR, product management, finance, accounting, uh, business development, basically every function of the company. And about 11 months into the company, um, Google Plus was just trying to get a lot of their social efforts off the ground. And there was an opportunity for the team to go kind of transfer over to Google in, in what I guess you'd call an acquihire because they didn't necessarily want to keep the product. Um, and so we all went over there and worked on Google plus for a little bit. Wow. That's fantastic. And I just want to highlight the, the job searching advice again, cause that's, I think that's incredible advice to, yeah, rather than just spray out a hundred resumes, generic resumes to a bunch of companies, just targeting one and then doing everything you can to get that job. And yeah, I've, I've been on the other side of the hiring table as well, a little bit later in my career. And if somebody did that, it would just be like a no brainer because if they've worked that hard to get the job, then, you know, they're going to really want the job and enjoy the job, hopefully, and keep working that hard uh, for your company. So I think that's just incredible advice. So, so you start working at Google, which uh, actually before that, I w- I'd like to just ask how that year was, was it, did you, was it, did you love it? Was it everything that you thought like entrepreneurship and startups would be? I think there's this allure that entrepreneurship running a company starting is just like super easy and exciting and just amazing every day. And it's a hard job. Um, and so I always tell people that unless I, I try to convince people not to start companies because I know that the people that end up doing it are probably the right people and people that I can convince not to in a five minute conversation, <laughs> probably, probably shouldn't do it in the first place. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. We were, you know, we launched a mobile app. We tried to figure out how to make it work. Um, we thought it was an idea that, you know, people would like the product was called oink and we let people rate things at places. So if you went to a restaurant, you could rate the meal you had, you could rate the cocktail you're drinking. If you went to a gallery, you could rate the exhibits or the piece of art you saw. And we thought it was a great way for people to, find things more specific than a venue. But it's a lot of data to input. We had a core group of users that added the data, but most people just wanted to use the app and there just wasn't enough data in there. So it had a really you know chicken and egg problem, which was we, we needed data at restaurants to let people rate things, but people didn't want to put the data in unless the app was useful. Uh, and so it was just a, you know, it was tough trying to make everything work. And I think if you are cognizant of how tough it will be, you know, you'll force yourself only to work on things that you really care about, which is why now that, you know, I'm, you know, running a company, um, you know, along with uh, a good friend of mine as my co-founder, we both care about the personal finance space so much that when stuff is hard, you know, it's easy to overcome because you actually really care about what you're working on. And I think that's the most important lesson is, you know, make sure that whatever you're going to throw your life into, you care about at almost a crazy level because running a company is hard. That's really good advice too. And even something is just a silly little blog as well. It's like <laughs> you you got to love the topic to really write about it for long enough to see any sort of traction. And uh, yeah, if you don't, that's why you see so many people just quit after a year because it's, it's not easy and it takes a long time for any sort of success, which I'm sure it's the same in the startup world as well. Yeah. I mean, as at Google, my path led me to Google Ventures, where I was a venture capitalist and we were investing in startups. And, you know, we kind of expected that, you know, more often than not, our early stage investments would fail. Like it is entrepreneurship and startups is not something where the hit rate from ground zero is like nine out of 10 times it works out. So you just, have to be aware of that, um, which is, 
you know, you, you basically, I, I told someone once, you have to be aware of the fact that this company might not work out and then compartmentalize that, throw it away and act every day as if, you know, it's going to be the biggest thing in the world because, you know, you have people's jobs depending on it and you have investors. And so I, I run every day, you know, as if it's going to be incredible. Um, even though, you know, deep in the back of my mind, I know, you know, it's a hard thing to make work. Sure. Definitely a good way to look at it. Cause yeah, you can't be just fearing that all the time, but you have to keep that in mind <laughs> at some points too, I'm sure. So you had mentioned that you were renting out your house during this trip. So I assume that you had bought before all of this took place. No, actually we were doing what I guess you would call rental arbitrage. We had rented <laughs> nice. an apartment. We had then subleased it on, you know, I think at one point a three month and then a two month and then another two month basis as a furnished apartment. So we hadn't bought any property yet. Um, it wasn't until we came back from our trip that we started thinking about, okay, well, where do we want to live? You know, we lived in this apartment for a long time. It was one of those, those kind of industrial lofts where the bedroom looks down to the living room. So if you ever had friends or family stay over, you know, everyone can see everyone at every point of time, except in the bathroom. Uh, so there was very little privacy. Um, you know, my wife and I were both working when we got back. So it was like on a stressful day. It's like, there's not one, like, if you want to just like have your own space, it was like, I'm going to go to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so we were casually looking for, for places, um, for maybe a year and a half. Uh, well, once we got back from our trip and it wasn't until one weekend when my parents were in town and you know, when you're in your late twenties and your parents are visiting a new city, it's like, what do you do with them when you're not eating? Right. <laughs> yeah. you go to museums. And so there was on the third day, it was like, well, there's not much, I don't know what to do. Uh, what do you want to go look at houses? And my parents are like, yeah, let's go look at open houses. And so we just went to look at open houses and, it was on the last house that was supposed to close in five minutes that my wife and I uh, just totally saw the opportunity to buy this house where there was essentially a third bedroom with its own entrance that we could turn into a studio. Um, and we were like, this is it. Like we, you know, we knew we wanted a place where we could, um, you know, make it more affordable. And San Francisco is a city at least where, the cost to rent a room compared to the cost to buy the same number of square feet um, in kind of mortgage payments is is kind of opportune for for the purchaser. At least it was, you know, five or six years ago. So um, it seemed like a great chance to to do something. Um, I, you know, I was fortunate to be able to take out a second loan from my parents for part of the down payment and pay them back over time uh, because San Francisco real estate is very expensive. Um, and so, you know, I, I recognize that's, that's not something everyone has and I, I'm pretty lucky for it. Um, but the most amazing thing was finding a way to, I guess I now learned years later is called house hacking where you can, uh, turn a, a home you own into income that as property prices and real estate and rents went up now actually pays for, um, pretty much our entire cost of living. Wow, that's incredible. So so you're still living in the main house, but then you're renting out the studio. Yeah. So we live, it's a it's a three-bedroom house, and one of the bedrooms is on the ground floor, and we're on the kind of next floor up, and it has its own entrance. And we installed a, a new lock on the door that locks from the inside, and we rent it out like a studio. Um, you know, in most cities, it would be strange to have a studio without a kitchen, but with so many startups in the Bay Area that provide, you know, all the meals and with, you know, restaurants and cafes on every corner. And, uh, it ends up, there are a ton of people who are young, single, don't cook that are just looking for a place where they can, you know, have a nice bedroom and bathroom and don't really care about the kitchen aspect. And, you know, there's a mini fridge and that kind of stuff in there. Yeah. And so that the income from that has helped us, uh, kind of subsidize the cost of living and, you know, put us in a situation to be able to save even more than, yeah, you know, we thought we could. That's really cool. And yeah, I would have never thought that you could rent a house without a kitchen, but yeah, it makes sense in the Bay Area, definitely. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, so I, I'd like to chat a little bit about Google Ventures because I'm sure you learned a lot that you've now, you know, are able to use as a founder of, of Grove. So what were some of those big lessons that you learned over those years working in Google Ventures? And how long did you actually work there for? Yeah, so I was at Google Ventures for about three years. 
I think in my time there, we probably did easily over a hundred investments. I was probably involved in 20 or 30 of them personally. Um, and man, if I, I, I could probably write, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of venture capitalists who could write longer books, but I feel like I learned so much as, as someone who both had started a company, went to venture and then left to start a company. Um, I think one of the biggest things was how important the people are. Mm-hmm. So not just the people who start the company, which I would say was my number one requirement in investing in companies. It was, it was never, you know, at the earliest stages, it was never about, you know, some business plan that in fact, if someone had sent me would be a deterrent from investing in their company. Um, it was always about the people, how passionate they were about the industry, how, you know, you watch companies face adversity and the thing that gets them through it is either, um, luck or perseverance. (laughs) And it's really hard to bet on whether people will be lucky. So it was much easier to bet on people that seemed so passionate and resourceful, um, about the thing they were doing that, you know, they would be able to get through anything. And so watching people do that was amazing. And, you know, it, it made me realize how important hiring is, uh, and how important finding the right people to, to surround yourself with at a company is. And, um, you know, I never would have thought three or four years ago that as the founder of a company, you, know, you would spend half your time, um, on people. Mm. Right. I, I thought, Oh, I was gonna, half the time's going to be running the company and creating the products. And, but I would say half the time. And I, and I would encourage other founders to do the same is, is, making sure the right people are in the room, making sure the people are in the room um, are as efficient and empowered and capable as they are. Um, and so we spent a long time finding the, the people who work at Grove now, and I couldn't be more excited about the team we have. And uh, I hope that just continues and, and it stays a focus because I don't think we would be able to have achieved any of what we've done or, you know, we will end up being as successful as I, as I plan for us to be, you know, without all the people here. And it's certainly, you know, impossible to do without them. So did you enjoy that side of it, the venture side, or did it get you itching to have your own startup, which is, is that how that led to Grove or? Yeah. So I, I was fortunate that some timing made it happen in that Google Ventures had gotten so big that we'd stopped doing early stage investing. And I kind of loved the early stage of it. So it forced me to think about what was next. Um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where you're watching every day, someone comes in and says, here's the dream. I'm going to go chase it. I'm more excited than I've ever seen. You know, you've ever seen anyone excited about anything. Uh, and you're like, great. And then they get to go do it and you get to watch them do it. And that is, something that I think people who've done it a few different times are like, I remember that, the nostalgia, I'm okay not doing it. And a lot of younger VCs are like, yep, I want to go do that. <laughs> like, and so I, I wanted to make sure I wasn't running blindly. Um, and so I wasn't just starting a company for, for the sake of starting a company. Um, so I, I didn't want to just go, oh, I'm going to go start a company. It was really, I wanted to be very aware of what I cared about, things that I loved to make sure that if I did start a company, that it was something that when times got tough, you know, I would still be excited when I needed to convince people to, you know, join me on this journey. I could do it from the deepest bottom of my heart because I believed in it. Um, and I can imagine how hard it would be to do all of those things if it wasn't something that was just so core to your passion. So that brings me to another question. So you're financially independent, you know, you probably made a good amount of money from selling a company to Google, your real estate is paying your living expenses, and you've been a great saver. So is it that that made you start another company? Because you could have just hung out and, you know, went back to Southeast Asia and hung out on beaches with your wife if you wanted to. So what is it that made you want to start that company? Yeah, I mean, I think I, similar to the way that I never knew there was an entire movement about financial independence, you know, the U S is interesting and that people don't really talk about money. Um, and so, you know, I had always been, you know, a great saver. I had convinced my wife to go down the crazy path of, you know, doing strange things to optimize money and travel and life. And, you know, convinced her it made sense to have random people live in our house with us, (laughs) uh, to save money. And I think she's on board, uh, though that wasn't an easy adventure. Um, and, 
what led what led from that was as I started to build a kind of, I guess, reputation in at least Silicon Valley with a lot of people of being this kind of crazy person that doesn't have to sacrifice life to, um, you know, still be able to save. I would say if you, if you, it's, it's maybe less about being frugal and more about optimizing for me. Mm -hmm. And so friends of mine would say, you know, I know you're this person that's always saving money and that's always, you know, trying to be financially independent, but you and your wife took a trip to, you know, Japan and you did so many amazing things. I don't, I don't understand. And I was like, wow, like we've been playing the miles and points and credit card <laughs> game. And like, that's it. And, uh, um, a good recent example was, uh, a friend of mine asked me, he's like, I saw you, there's a, a company called Peloton and they make a indoor cycling, uh, bike with a built-in LCD display and classes. And it ends up actually costing about $2,500 to buy this indoor bike and $40 a month. But it, you know, it's beautiful. It has these great classes. And a friend of mine, um, friended me on the platform and was like, I don't understand. You're, you're never spending money. How do you have this expensive thing? I was like, well, actually I bought a, you know, $300 indoor bike. <laughs> I mounted a couple sensors that I bought for $30 on Amazon to it. And then I mounted an iPad to it. And now for about $400, I built my own version of it and I use their iPad app. And so, you know, I, my, my kind of mantra in life is I, I'm not trying to tell people to, you know, go stay at home, never eat out, um, you know, never travel and, you know, buy beans and rice so that you can, you know, retire early. It's find the things that matter to you and optimize your life in a way that they can be affordable uh, within your means so you can still do all the stuff you love. And so as I, you know, did that regularly and people kept bringing it up, they were like, yeah, how do I do that? Like, is there a service where instead of asking you a question, we could like sit down and you could just help me figure out how I could do that better. And I was like, surely that exists, right? Like, <laughs> of course, like people have had money issues for centuries. Uh, there has to be, um, you know, a way to make this happen. And I, I started looking at the industry. I was like, oh, financial advisors. Of course, everyone needs a financial advisor. This must be what people are describing. And as you look at the industry, you find out that most financial advisors in the U.S. Um, have no obligation to act in a client's best interest. And so, uh, you know, many of them are pushing products that aren't in people's best interest. They're pushing life insurance policies that make them really large commissions, but, uh, are nowhere near as good as the alternative. And so th that's not great. Um, some of the ones who do have this fiduciary obligation act in your best interest, many of those financial advisors, um, you know, only work with people with millions of dollars, which is great if you have millions of dollars, but not great if you're trying to get to that point. And so I, I realized that there wasn't really a resource, um, other than like reading blogs and learning to do something on your own for people to get financial advice before they had millions of dollars that was in their best interest. And even, even the people that are reading the blogs, like I get emails all the time who just want someone to look at their exact situation and help them with their exact numbers and not just some general numbers. So even, yeah, even the people that are reading the blogs, that's still something that's in high demand, I would say. Yeah. And so that was, that was the conclusion we came to was this is crazy. There's not a single affordable way for someone to get personalized financial advice. All the startups I'd seen had been focused on very specific problems like, oh, if you know you need to invest for 30 years, we'll you know, create a uh, you know, automatic rebalancing portfolio for you. It's like an even better version of your 2040 retirement fund. But when it comes to understand my situation, help me figure out if I should be spending more, saving more, whether I have enough money to take this vacation or how to prepare to make sure that I can save enough to buy a home or send my kids to college. There wasn't a service that really was helpful uh, that didn't cost thousands of dollars a year. And I was just so motivated by the fact that my life had seemingly been so fortunate and great because I had some of these kind of core principles that I somehow was fortunate enough to be born into or learned and that for some people, you know, get coming to those conclusions was a lot more difficult. And it seemed like this is something anyone can do. We have to find a way to make it possible because people would just be so much happier and so much less stressed. Uh, I'm sure, you know, like 
money is, you know, one of the biggest causes of stress in, in the world. And, you know, certainly in relationship issues and all kinds of stuff. And so if we could find a way to affordably help people be confident in their finances, we could do a lot of good. That's fantastic. So yeah, can you, can you please describe what Grove offers? Yeah. So we, we took kind of a a common principle of financial planning, um, which is, you know, going through taking an inventory of how you're doing and, um, you know, planning for the short term and, and, you know, taking, optimizing your situation. And we kind of created a, a little bit of a program around it. We hired a team of financial planners. So we have CFPs that work at Grove and we offer financial planning. Um, right now we will make a personalized financial plan. Um, and you'll work with a human to do that assisted by software we've built, um, for $600. And I think the average cost of a financial plan in the U.S. right now is uh, a little over $2,500 and primarily driven by um, poor software and, you know, uh, a previous generation's demand for services that were in person and very, very, very handholdy. And so we took kind of the demands of a new generation and built some software so that we could make financial planning affordable. So for $600, um, you can work with a financial planner. They will help you put, make sense of your situation and your goals, and we'll build a personalized plan that walks through you know, what you can be doing today and how you can plan for the future and how your current situation lines up with your goals and help you get on track to something that makes sense. And we'll leave people with really actionable advice where they can know exactly you know, what kind of account they should open and how much to put in it to start having an emergency fund or the exact investment options they should put in their 401k. And yeah, so they're fiduciary advisors, so you don't have to worry about them selling you something that's you know going to benefit them instead of you. So that's fantastic. And I'm assuming with your background, the advisors that you do have on staff are familiar with the whole financial independence, retire early sort of thing that seems to be taking off all over the country these days. Yeah. So um, we, we were lucky. We found two amazing first CFPs to join the team that are both kind of in our generation and understand kind of modern needs of, of kind of people in their late twenties, thirties, early forties. Um, but who've also spent almost a decade each in the industry. So we have both like the relatability of, you know, someone that understands the needs of this generation, but also the experience of someone who's seen, uh, you know, a wide breadth of, of concerns and issues. How big of a role does the technology play? Is that just like sort of streamline the onboarding process so that, you know, the information that gets to the advisor is easier to then process or how, how does the technology integrate into, into your system? Yeah. So when, when you sign up for an account with Grove, instead of kind of filling the traditional kind of shoebox of financial statements, um, we've built technology to let you sync your accounts. Uh, that, that helps both for the ingestion of information early on, but it also helps down the road. So on an ongoing basis, our advisors can kind of stay in tune with what's going on and, and proactively be able to help reach out uh, and help with things. So if an advisor you know, noticed, oh, you, your bonus uh, was paid out. Hopefully you work at a company unlike, unlike me where, where the bonuses do get paid out. Uh, and hopefully we can help you figure out what to do and how to adjust your plan accordingly when things like that happen. It also helps with just the creation of a financial plan. Uh, traditional software would require the advisor to manually input a lot of data and would spit out a 50, 60 page PDF that doesn't make much sense. And so our software was designed, you know, kind of with this generation in mind so that the financial plans we, we generate for people are both personalized, but also just comprehensible. They make sense. You know, we had, we wrote them in kind of common, understandable English instead of lots of jargony terms. We have a full-time designer so that they actually look good and they make sense. And, you know, the bar's pretty low, but I think we've built the best financial plan there is, um, and so, you know, both technology and design have really made this something that, you know, I, it's a shame that with other advisors, uh, and not all of them, but with many of them, you're paying for an advisor to explain something to you because the end product was produced by software that, you know, feels like it's a decade old, when if it were just designed properly and it were written well, you know, the average person could actually understand it themselves. Gotcha. So we're trying to trim away the time that advisors spend doing things that people can do themselves um, and have make sure that the advisors really add value and understanding someone's unique circumstance or tackling a challenging issue 
instead of just walking someone through, uh, you know, their net worth, um, which is something that if you design it right, people can understand on their own. Uh, very cool. If someone who is similar to you in that they get really excited about the idea of starting a business to help people and things like that, um, how big of a role do you think moving to San Francisco played? Like, is it, is it worth doing and sucking up the higher cost of living to get out there to, to do these things? Or do you think, you know, you can do it elsewhere? It would just be a lot maybe more complicated or time consuming or it take longer to get to where you've gotten to in your career. Yeah, I think, you know, it is an interesting question because I, a part of me wants to say, look, if you want to start a venture backed technology company and to do that, you want to hire the best talent of engineers and designers. Um, and you want access to capital and everything, San Francisco, you know, you could make a, a compelling case is the, the best place in the world to do it. But if you want to, if your bar isn't, you know, I want to start the hardest technology company in the world and I need access to the best engineers, uh, and you, you want to start a company and, you know, you want to provide a service and maybe you want investors, maybe you don't, uh, I'm not convinced that you have to do it in San Francisco. Um, you know, I, there are great investor ecosystems in cities all around the world. Um, New York, Boston, Chicago, Denver, Austin, Texas, LA, uh, London. Uh, there's a lot going on in Southeast Asia. There's a lot going on in uh, Japan and Korea and the UK. And so I'm not, I'm not convinced people have to move to San Francisco. I think that if a company ends up going down a path to being the next Google, Apple, Tesla, like it will probably ultimately make sense for them to have some amount of the company based here because that's where a lot of the talent is. Um, but a lot of what I got from being in San Francisco could have, could have happened for a few week long trips where you go meet a lot of people, go to a lot of events, schedule a lot of meetings. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, some of it is just the serendipity of you're at a dinner and you run into someone and, um, you know, that conversation leads to something that maybe is next week. And if you didn't live here, it'd be hard to do. So, uh, I'm a little torn. I think there's some amazing people that end up, uh, in, in cities all around the country. And, you know, I could imagine of having started Grove in Austin or New York, and I don't think it would have held us back. Mm -hmm. Um, but I guess it depends how important the, the capital needs and the kind of human resource needs are, uh, to how important it is to be in those hubs. It's, it's certainly a lot cheaper to start a company, hire a team, rent an office, basically anywhere else in the world. So <laughs> it is not necessary to be in the Bay Area. But I would, if you're, if you're serious about starting a technology company, I would make sure you spend a few weeks out here just meeting interesting people. The other question I had is um, everything you learned from Google Ventures and your experience with that, do you think, obviously you're too busy now, but maybe later on in your career, do you ever see yourself like doing, doing any angel investing or? It's funny when it, you know, it, while you could look at my path and say, wow, you're really risky, you know, you, you left jobs and you took the path of entrepreneurship. When it comes to my personal financial situation, I, I'm fairly conservative. I like to save a lot of money. I like to do, you know, index fund investing and, uh, you know, I'm not on the train of dumping my entire net worth into Bitcoin right now. <laughs> yeah. um, and so when I think about angel investing, it's, it's, it's really a, a tough subject for me personally because I feel like I have access to lots of interesting companies and I've had the opportunity to you know, invest in companies that ended up doing really well. But my kind of personal financial independence journey and my risk profile doesn't totally match up with the incredible amount of risk that comes with you know, angel investing and investing in private companies. And so at least for the time being where I work at uh, a super early stage startup, uh, my wife works at a, a late stage startup, we live in the Bay Area where real estate prices are tied to the tech industry. It seems like all my investing personally uh, would probably benefit from being a little bit removed from the same market dynamic. <laughs> right. Um, but I could see if, if we ended up retiring and moving you know, out of the Bay Area and not working at startup jobs, um, you know, would that be a good you know, part of diversifying the portfolio? I, I could see that. Um, but for me... You know, I tend to tell people that to make angel investing work, you really need to make sure that you're going to write, you know, 10, 20 different investment checks 
And, you know, the minimum amount of investment for a lot of companies is anywhere from ten to $25,000. And so if you're going to write $10,000, $20,000 checks, you know, you need to set aside $200,000 to really get into angel investing. And, you know, I have been very fortunate, but not not fortunate enough that I have $200,000 that I want to allocate to something that risky. Right. Uh, and so for me, it doesn't fit into the profile. Um, and But, you know, I say that and I have friends that have put a few thousand dollars, maybe ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 in companies and turned it into millions of dollars. And I'm like, man, you know, that would have been nice. <laughs> you know, if you, if you had to put all of your net worth into Bitcoin a year ago, you know, you would be happy today. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know, the risk that comes with that is some, you know, it, it would also shock no one if the price of Bitcoin tomorrow, uh, and, and the funny thing is it doesn't matter when you listen to this podcast, if <laughs> right. the price of Bitcoin tomorrow drops by 50%, I still don't think anyone would be shocked. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't know, I like to play a little bit more conservative with my finances, uh, given how much risk I take in my day-to-day life and job. Well, that sounds like a very wise move. You mentioned retirement, and obviously you've saved for financial independence and been, you know, a great saver and investor over the years. Do you can you ever see yourself actually retiring? Yeah. So I had, uh, you know, I considered myself retired when I left Google, um, and so it, it, in my mind, I am retired right now. But retirement to me means you are only working on things you care about, uh, and you're not, you know having to do a job for the purpose of, of making money, uh, you know, that you don't love. And so in my mind, I kind of am retired. Uh, but from the perspective of not doing anything from day to day, you know, when my wife and I traveled for seven months, six months in, we were kind of like, we just have to do something. Like, we want to get back to work. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I've been in a place where six months was as long as I could go without doing anything. Uh, and so what that means is probably not like, I will probably be finding some way, um, to fulfill my drive and passions and energy, uh, that isn't just sitting on a beach or on a porch reading, uh, you know, probably for the rest of my life. You know, my dad is, you know, almost, almost 70 now. And I think he's, he's still going and, you know, he, he, you know, runs a good part of his, the company he works at. And, uh, you know, he's talking about retirement and in his mind, retirement is, stopping working 50 hours a week and starting working 30 hours a week. It's not stopping working. Um, so I would be shocked if, if there's ever a time where I just want to sit around and do nothing that, that doesn't seem that exciting to me. Nope. Me either. And yeah, I'm impressed you lasted six months. I think by two and a half months I was like, all right, yeah, I need to get, I need to get, I need to do something. This is crazy. Even though it was super fun and it was, yeah, nice Thai beach, perfect weather, great food, super cheap. And, I was like, no, I need to get back. And oh, it's amazing, isn't it? (laughs) So good. Um, So I usually end all my interviews with just asking, like, what what's one piece of advice you would have for someone who's hoping to achieve financial independence? Yeah, my my biggest piece of advice is, and I I got two things that I'm I'm straddling. But the biggest one is just evaluate everything on on whether it makes you actually happy. Um, There's a great book I read called Happy Money, um, which just kind of presented me with a lot of data to think about like what really makes you happy. And, you know, in a world where people are buying, you know, new sneakers and buying, you know, handbags and clothes that are really expensive, you know, I kind of came to the conclusion that like those things didn't make my life more fulfilling. Um, and so the easier you can get out of the mindset of spending money on things you don't need, uh, the easier it is to, to start to save more. Um, the, the biggest rule of thumb I tell everyone is it's, it's, it's almost impossible to find an investment where you can, you know, double your money. Uh, but if you can cut your spending in half, you've essentially done that. Right. Uh, and so, uh, just being more aware of how you're spending and, and optimizing it exclusively around happiness and not, you know, what you think society is telling you, uh, and getting really creative about things. Um, whether it's points and miles or, um, you know, those crazy sites where you click, you know, shopping portal, cashback links, like all those things end up adding up over the, over the years. And, and the more you do and the less you spend, the easier it is. 
my framework for savings is is an atypical. A lot of people I talk to, they're like, I'm going to save 20%. As far as I'm concerned, 100% of every dollar my wife and I make goes into savings. And I treat every expense as a, do I want to dip into my savings to make this purchase? And so it can, it can be overwhelming for some people to make the transition to that idea. But in my mind, my savings rate is 100%. Everything goes into savings. And if I want to buy a pair of shoes, it's does this pair of shoes compare to where this money will be, you know, if it earns interest in compounds over the years? Uh, there was a great conversation someone had with Warren Buffett where he was like trying to buy furniture in his house and his wife suggested this couch and she's like, but it's only $700 and it'll last 30 years. And he's like, no, it's not only $700 because if that $700 compounds over the next 30 years, it's so much more. So what you don't get is that this is actually like a $10,000 couch. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a great answer. And that's, it's so, it's amazing how similar we are. And, and as you were talking earlier about just optimizing that, I think that's just the key. It's just like, it's not, you're not depriving yourself. You're just optimizing and yeah, all, everything that you've talked about, it's like, yep, I do that. And all the travel hacking, all the shopping portals. And it's just like, and it does add up. It's, it's just amazing. And you feel like you can do everything you want to do. So I thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been fantastic. If people want to learn more about Grove or maybe get in touch with you, what's the best way? Just go to usegrove.com. Yeah, you can find me. Grove is uh, usegrove.com. Um, I'm at Hutchins on Twitter. And yeah, feel free to, to reach out, check us out. Um, actually I, I could probably set up, uh, usegrove.com slash mad scientist. And anyone that goes to that link, we could just jump, jump through the wait list right now. Um, oh, if cool. people want to check it out. Yeah. So. I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes and yeah, thank you so much again. It's just been a pleasure and, uh, yeah, hopefully see you in San Francisco next time we're there. Yeah, I'm excited. Come on out. And thanks for having me. This has been great. It's uh, it's not every day you get to to spend some time talking to people that, that think so similarly about savings and and stuff in a, in a, in a day and age where people are spending lots. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, man. I appreciate it. I'll hopefully speak to you soon. Sounds good. Take care. All right. Bye. Finance.